Hey, this is Chelsea, teacher who hikes. I'm out here on a nice fall day. I'm really excited about this weather. Oh my gosh, it's like finally starting to cool off. Anyways, a lot of people at work, online, my friends ask me the same question. How do you find these places? How do you know where to go hike? Because I'm always talking about these really cool things I see and... Well, first of all, I appreciate the beauty in the small things. It looks like I go to these extravagant places when really a lot of them are local. I just know how to find the beauty in things, and that's how I, you know, we'll get pictures of it or whatnot. But a lot of the more scenic places are obviously not local, and they're going to be all over the place. What I do is I read a lot. I see a lot online. We all do. And when I see something that looks like it might interest me, I have this Google spreadsheet. I recommend everybody starts one or something like it. And what you do is you make a um, almost category or spot for every, I do state. You could do it even more local, like county or city. And I have a state, so I have 50 spots. And in each spot, I write down every single cool place I see. Um, if, and I, I've grown to have a whole bunch of places I want to go to in each state. So if I'm going on a road trip to, let's say, Arizona, then I know on the way what to put in my pit stop because I'm able to look at my list that I've developed over time of all these apparently so secret places. Um, it's a longer tip, but it's one that if you're going to prep and you want to see places like this, you got to know where to go. So I recommend everybody start something like this. Um, yeah. So, if you have questions about it, too, you can always message me on Instagram, because I think it's a great way to get started on trying to organize where you're going. All right, have a good week. Walking down the trail and come face-to-face -face with a lynx, or, or maybe even a bobcat? Start belting out songs by groups like Hey Monday, All Time Low, Cobra Starship, Metro Station, or even Fallout Boy. That are reminded of its days as a scene kid, and while it's in flashback mode, you can quickly make your escape. This is A Wildlife with Devin and Richard Boker, a podcast that blends science, nature, and the human experience through storytelling and interviews with experts of the Earth, Earth's experts. I'm Devin. And I'm Richard. And this, this is part two of The Fungus Among Us. Last time, we spoke with Dr. Tom Volk of UW Lacrosse, And it was very much a foray of fungi. But this week, we're diving deeper into one particular aspect. The Wood Wide Web. Now, two weeks ago, we did a re-airing of a fairly old episode um, about um, happening upon a very peculiar plant called Indian Pipe, or, or ghost plant. It's a sapotrophic parasite. It's a plant that lacks chlorophyll itself and gets its sugar by hijacking an underground system like, like some sort of Old West train robbery. So, if you haven't heard that, I'd recommend going back and listening to that. Uh, and if you skipped part one of The Fungus Among Us, you're definitely going to want to go back and listen to that. But anyway, Volk sort of got into this topic last week. But about a week or so prior to the interview with Volk, I had actually spoken to Dr. Kabir Pei to help me understand just what was going on underground in this subterranean eco, uh, in this subterranean Wall Street. Plus, he had some incredible research published recently. We'll get into that. 
Some of what we cover will repeat a little bit, but most of it is new and interesting stuff, so let's dive deeper into the invisible world of the Wood Wide Web. My name is Kabir Pei. I'm a professor in the biology department at Stanford University, and I study the ecology of fungi and their interactions with plants. Dr. Kabir Pei completed a master's degree at Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Science in 2003 and earned his PhD in 2008 from UC Berkeley's Department of Environmental Science Policy. He did his postdoctoral training at UC Berkeley in the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology with Tom Bruins and at Stanford in the Department of Biology with Tadashi Fukami. He was an assistant professor in the Department of Plant Pathology at the University of Minnesota from 2011 to 2012 before coming back to Stanford in 2012 to join the Department of Biology in his current position. He's also named a fungus after SpongeBob. Yeah, we were uh, we were in Borneo, and uh, this is our first trip out there. Um, and I took one of my advisors, a guy named Tom Bruns, with me. And, uh, you know, we'd never been out there, and there hasn't actually been that much work on studying these ectomycorrhizal fungi and fungal communities in tropical mm-hmm. forests. And so it was a really fun chance for us to do, go and kind of do some neat uh, biodiversity discovery stuff. And we found a bunch of mushrooms that we had no idea what they were. Um, and this one thing we found that looked like a sponge, had this kind of spongy coral look. Um, you know, we'd never, none of us had ever seen it before and had really no idea um, what it could possibly be um, to even, you know, uh, an order of magnitude. But we collected it, took some photos of it, um, brought it back to San Francisco. And what we discovered was that there was a scientist at uh, San Francisco State University who's a, a mushroom taxonomist who had described the, the genus, uh, a different species, but that same genus in Thailand. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he had, I can't remember what he had named the first one. I think it was Spongiforma thailandica. Um, but Tom and I, uh, this advisor, have always had sort of a terrible sense of humor and, uh, <laughs> and enjoy injecting it into our science. And so we, we decided that it would be brilliant if we named this thing Spongiforma squarepantsii. And, and so we got uh, got Dennis on board and he did the formal description and um, we did some of the DNA sequencing to help you know place it in a particular lineage. But um, uh, yeah, and we kind of forced it through the review process. Um, and it was funny. There were, uh, there were, of course, a bunch of people that are kind of curmudgeonly, and uh, some of the reviewers weren't very happy with our choice of a name. They thought it was a little bit trivial. Um, actually, I, the thing that I like about the name is that it actually has gotten people interested. That is probably one of the pieces of science I've done that has gotten the most public attention. It, I think it won an award for being one of the you know 10 best species of the year, and you know, it came out with a description. And it's uh, showed up in some, you know, children's, uh, you know, natural history sticker collection books. And, um, you know, it's actually uh, it, it, it seems to have, you know, caught people's attention. And to me, if anything that helps people think about these relatively, you know, ignored groups of organisms like fungi and helps kind of orient people to their importance and their ubiquity and all the diversity that we don't know about and haven't described. then I, I think that's great science. For the rest of the episode, we're going to sort of go silent let you soak it all in. Yeah, like the externally digested surf and turf that it is. That makes a lot more sense if you listen to the first half. Yeah, I suppose that's true. But anyway, we will chime in on occasion, but we're going to do something we don't typically do, and that is to just largely let the interview play. Um, it's sort of going out of our comfort zone, but this episode is definitely a bit more technical. Uh, so we just kind of... Uh, felt it felt it appropriate here it goes but mycocentric ecology so myco if i understand right the greek that's just greek for fungi right so okay so that would just be fungi centered ecology basically yeah exactly 
Yeah, yeah. So what what got you interested in that? Where, I, I guess, kind of what what at what point in your life did you decide like that was the path that you were going to take? Um, yeah, it was actually um, really only when I started my PhD um, and maybe towards the end of my master's program, uh, I really got interested in. Um, probably like a lot of people that are interested in ecology, I was interested in the way in which humans are influencing kind of natural ecosystems. And one of the things I was very interested in uh, was this idea of um, emerging infectious diseases and their effects on, uh, you know, uh, natural systems like wildlife sure. and forests. Um, and I learned about something called sudden oak death, which is uh, strictly speaking, not a fungus, but is a fungus like pathogen that was causing really rapid die off of oaks and uh, other trees in California. Um, huh. so I started thinking that, um, you know, there's this whole world of interactions between microbial organisms and plants and animals that I wanted to start to investigate. And, uh, as I, so I chose to go do a PhD working in a lab that studied these plant fungal interactions. And uh, as I was doing this project, I kind of realized that we know so much about uh, plants and animals, but that our baseline knowledge of things like fungi and bacteria was uh, so much lower and that um, we were really just starting to get these molecular tools, the ability to sequence things like DNA that enabled us to really accurately quantify diversity and ecology of microbial organisms like fungi and bacteria. And so that was really sort of the light bulb that went off for me was that um, you know, these organisms are fascinating. They're really important. Uh, they do things like regulate the diversity and structure of macroecological systems that uh, a lot of us kind of tend to pay attention to. Um, and that we were really at this discovery point when all of a sudden we could begin to use these tools to really see these organisms for the first time. Very cool. Very cool. You know, I, I, I think that's a bit of a trend. I think, you know, when people are getting into ecology or biology, the first things that, you know, people want to study wolves and lions and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, insects and fungi and bacteria, all that kind of stuff just kind of goes by the wayside and kind of important. Um, I, I think I saw your phrasing ecosystems from the ground up, right? Ecosystems yeah. from the ground up. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's kind of the flip side of how a lot of people like to look at things. They like to start kind of big and then scale down. So there's this wood wide web. It's a it's a myco mycorrhizal network. Absolutely. Like yeah, and mycorrhiza, again, I mean, literally, if you take the uh, Greek and translate it, myco is fungus and rhiza means root. And so mycorrhiza means fungus root. So this this network underground, I mean, is this is this only in, uh, you know, like like this part of the world? Is it in temperate climates or does it expand farther than that? No, I mean, uh, so, um, you know, I think one of the misconceptions people have about plants in general is that um, I think people understand rightly that they make roots in order to take up critical nutrients and water. Uh, these are essential for plant growth. Um, yeah. But I think most people, the way that we have learned traditionally is that the roots are kind of in the soil doing their own thing, taking up nutrients and water. Um, but in reality, if you go back really to the dawn of terrestrial life when plants first started growing on land, and this is probably somewhere between, you know, four and 500 million years ago, um, there's a lot of good evidence that, you know, from old fossils and from uh, molecular dating that as soon as plants, um, you know, evolved out of this aquatic system where they're basically bathed in the nutrients that they needed to get to trying to extract them from this um, dense media soil, this very complex media, that uh, they started forming these partnerships with fungi uh, to, in order them to better take these things up and facilitate growth. 
The symbiotic relationship between plant roots and mycorrhizal fungi wasn't discovered until the 1880s by a Polish scientist, and uh, this interaction had been observed a few decades prior, but uh, we didn't really understand it yet. We, we thought the fungi was being parasitic to the roots. Um, and so, you know, this partnership between plants and fungi goes back really to the dawn of what we think of as land plants. And so almost all plants uh, form these types of associations. And so um, it's much easier to point out groups of plants that don't have these kinds of um, interactions with fungi that don't form these mycorrhiza and partake in this wood wide web than it is to name all the plant species that do do this. Really? Huh. So, I mean, I, you know, just when you, when you start, I mean, so many things. Okay. So many things. So, you know, the traditional sense of, you know, learning about trees and things, I, you know, so you know, the, the drinking up water, this, the taking in, in nutrients. I mean, how, how much of that, I guess, are the trees doing as compared to, maybe the, the network itself. Yeah, so there's um, there's quite a lot of variation. And so one thing that's, you know, since these relationships have been around for, you know, four or 500 million years, there's quite a bit of diversity. So they've evolved over time. New groups of, you know, plants, of course, have evolved since then. Many new types of uh, species of fungi have evolved and different kinds of mycorrhizal interactions have actually evolved over time. So there's actually many forms of this type of interaction. Okay. Um, and uh, you know how, how much resource gets moved between the plant and the fungus depends on the individual plant and fungal species, the functional type of mycorrhizal symbiosis that they form, and the environmental conditions they're in. But you know there are some ballpark numbers depending on you know what type of symbiosis we're talking about. You know some of the numbers that get thrown around are um, sometimes plants can get up to say 90% of their nitrogen. 90%. Yeah, and some, you know, at least in one case, wow. some documented numbers uh, that are that high. And uh, plants can allocate, uh, the numbers vary again, but somewhere between 5 and, you know, 25% of their net carbon gain. And so this is like, you know, if you were to invest, you know, 25% of your net income in something, uh, this is something that you would, you know, value quite a lot. And so a fair amount of the plant carbon can go below ground to these fungal partners. So maybe maybe just to back up just a tad then. So... Sure. How, how, how exactly, exactly does, does this work? work? Yeah. So, uh, you know, essentially, as I said, mycorrhiza means fungus root, and it refers basically to the the root and the fungal hyphae, which is, you know, fungi are basically made up of these microscopic filaments that look like little microscopic threads. So they're about 10 times narrower than uh, one of the hairs on your head. Not sure if this is all the time or how often, but... Uh... Some hyphae strands I, I've heard are only a single cell wide, just literally a chain of cells. So, you know, no wonder they're able to just uh, go through the soil like it's not even there. Um, so wow. they're quite fine. And so these uh, hyphae of the fungus can uh, grow into the roots of the plant and grow in and around it in some cases. And so they kind of mingle together to form this new organ that we call a mycorrhiza or a fungus root. And what happens from there is that the hyphae of the fungus grow out into the soil um, and because they're so fine and they can grow really effectively through solid media like soil, they do a much more effective job of exploring uh, the soil and getting the nutrients that the plant needs. So the, fu the fungus grows out from the root, uh, goes into the soil, and it scavenges things like nitrogen and phosphorus primarily. Um, and these are the things that often most limit plant growth. And so these are the things that control the productivity or the amount of biomass that um, plants are able to put on. When you say scavenge, I mean, where, where are they getting the, uh, the nitrogen and, and phosphorus from, typically? 
Yeah, so it, I mean, it depends. And some of these are in uh, uh, mineral forms that exist in the soil. Some of these are um, some of these fungi are able to uh, produce enzymes that break down essentially plant or microbial necromass that has the nitrogen or phosphorus bound into it. Okay. Um, sometimes they're producing enzymes that are breaking apart small soil particles or bits of matter that are stuck to soil particles that have these nutrients that they could get out. Mm -hmm. So they pick these nutrients up in the soil, uh, they move the nitrogen and phosphorus through their hyphae. And so the network of these hyphae, the sort of integrated network of these individual filaments is known as a mycelium. So they would then move this nutrient, these nutrients through this soil network uh, back to the root. Uh, and then in the root, they exchange these nutrients for um, usually sugars. So the plants are photosynthesizing, of course. This allows them to have a lot of access to um, uh, you know, uh, carbohydrates, so carbon, uh, and they basically are trading carbon for uh, nitrogen and phosphorus. So the, the, this network moves to the soil. How, how far out from, you know, a, a tree that it might be in a, in a relationship with, uh, might they be, you know, branch out? Is it, is it, you know, a matter of feet? Is it quarter mile? Like what kind of size are we talking? Yeah. So I mean, this kind of gets into, um, how big is a how big is an individual fungus? I mean, how big is its body? Okay. So its body is made up of these little individual hyphae, but they can branch out and form a network. Um, for the most part, when people have gone out and mapped the size of individuals uh, of particular fungal species, um, they're usually not all that large. Maybe on the size of a couple meters. Um, okay. Although they can be larger, I think sometimes they can extend you know distances of you know tens of meters. Um, although there are, you know, I don't know if you've heard of the humongous fungus. The humongous fungus is a type of a parasitic fungus called armillaria and is uh, also known as the honey mushroom. One of the things that uh, we had said uh, Volk had studied. And uh, it's in eastern Oregon and it covers over three square miles. And it's believed to be between 2,000 to 8,000 years old. Like Betty White. Yes. So yeah. the vast majority of fungal individuals are quite small, but uh, sometimes they can become quite large. And this humongous fungus is not a mycorrhizal fungus. It's a, actually a pathogen of trees, but, you know, it's estimated to be, I think it was, um, was 12,000 feet in diameter. So it can oh, be uh, quite large. That's, that's, that's just nuts. You know, think about, you know, a blue whale or, or something like that. No, they're, they're kind of beat. Um, so, okay, so, th so this is moving through the soil. It gets to a tree root. Yeah. yeah. What what takes place there? Like how how does this? I mean, it's not like a you know reaching out to your neighbor across the street and borrowing a cup of sugar type thing. Like how how exactly does it start? Um, yeah. So the uh, it you know the the specifics of how the transfer and what these structures look like depend or vary a little bit. So there's some okay. differences between uh, different types of these mycorrhizal uh, symbiotes. Sure. Um, but just take the the one of the most common forms. So the fungus actually grows into the root um, and it penetrates the cell wall of the fun of the plant. Um, and it forms this really branched thing that looks like a small bush uh, that kind of pushes in um, the membrane of the plant. So it doesn't actually quite cross the membrane, but it forms this highly branched structure that creates a lot of surface area. Um, ah. Basically lots of surface area across which the exchange of these different resources can happen. Okay, okay. And then you said, so, okay, so then at this point, so they've entered, they're able to start passing things back and forth. You said some, some trees, some of these relationships is upwards of, of 
or possibly 90% nitrogen. Um, so, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a lot. That's not, I mean, that's 90%, uh, that's almost a hundred percent. So, I mean, if, if this didn't exist, if this relationship then wasn't taking place between, uh, this network and this particular tree, you know, what, what would that mean in terms of that tree's growth? Yeah. Um, you know, again, there's a, there's quite a spectrum in nature, but, um, for a lot of these plants, um, it's really hard to imagine them completing their natural life cycle without these fungi. And so I would say probably for the vast majority of plants, their growth would be incredibly stunted um, and they would not be very successful at all. Um, And uh, certainly there are a number of kind of really important tree species, um, particularly in the temperate zone, things like pines um, that, you know, for all intents and purposes are essentially obligate. That is to say that if their fungal partners weren't around, uh, they probably wouldn't grow very well at all. And in Mm. fact, would probably die after not too long. Really? Um, and there are some examples of, you know, cases where people have tried to do the silviculture. So they've tried to take tree species and introduce them to new parts of the world and grow them there, you know, for timber. Um, and in some cases, they've tried to move things like pines that are highly mycorrhizal into parts of the world that don't have the appropriate types of mycorrhizal fungi for them. And what they found really quickly is that these plantations, even though they're trying to give the trees everything they need, that these things fail relatively quickly. Um, and they fail until they co-plant the trees with fungi from their native range that allow them to form these mycorrhizal relationships. So the the dependence is pretty strong. I, I And I, I know there's probably a lot of variability in just how strong and stuff. Is there is there a tendency at all, you know, looking at the overall, uh, I guess, pairs of things that are, that are mycorrhizal um, of of a dependency to be really weighted one way or the other, you know, like how, how dependent are the fun on the fungi on the trees or the plants and and vice versa? Could they make do in a sense without the plants or is it really intertwined? Yeah. Um, I would say that for the vast majority, well, not the vast majority, for essentially all of the mycorrhizal fungi, these are pretty obligately dependent on their plant hosts. Okay. Uh, that is to say that you would almost never in nature find these fungi growing without the hosts. I think under very special circumstances, you can grow them by themselves in laboratory conditions. Um, mm-hmm. It's true of some of them, actually, a, a large number of them you can't even grow in the laboratory without the host. And so they really are obligately dependent on these plants. The uh, For the plants, I mean, a, a lot of these plants, you could germinate and you can get them to grow uh, and they'll do okay, probably particularly if you provide them with enough nitrogen and phosphorus. But in, in reality, in nature, um, they're at a huge competitive disadvantage. And so they are pretty dependent on these fungi. Okay. And so th- and this is really a, a good example then of, you know, just kind of a co-evolutionary story then of, of you know, I would assume then that the evolution of both these fungi and both, you know, the plants are probably then really intertwined with each other as far as uh, maybe pushing each other um, to be able to expand in, in their range or, or to be able to grow at the levels that they do. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, um, I guess the way that I, I think about it is, um, is that the types of partnerships that these plants form really strongly influences uh, where plants can grow and how successful they are in particular environments. Um, and so that's one of the things that our group has worked quite a bit on is um, there's quite a lot of variation, as I said, in the types of mycorrhizal symbioses that are formed. 
Um, and we've tried to work a lot on mapping where in the world you find these different functional varieties of mycorrhizal interactions. And what we find is that there's really strong global scale patterns. And so particular environments are dominated by plants that form, you know, really one type of this uh, symbiosis. And to me, what this really shows is that, you know, um, that these fungi are really critical in these partnerships. Cooperation is really critical in determining where organisms can grow and that the capabilities they have, what is their their niche, so to speak, um, sure. is determined not just by their individual physiological capabilities, but also by the partnerships that they form with uh, other organisms. Uh, but in the case of plants, uh, really these mycorrhizal fungi. Looking, uh, I, I guess, then kind of back at this this relationship between um, between the fungi and, and the trees. So uh, nutrients, they share nutrients. Is there anything else that they share chemically? Uh, yeah, so there's, I mean, some evidence that uh, that plant plants can get water from the fungi, that the fungi can improve um, sort of um, water uptake. Um, there's probably a number of other mineral nutrients that they share, but probably some of the more interesting studies that have come out recently are that um, showing that there are um, what you would call chemical signals that can be passed between these networks. Um, and uh, this can be things like, uh, you know, chemicals that, um, signals that help regulate things like plant defense responses. And so there have been some cool studies that have come out recently that show that um, plants can essentially communicate via these common mycorrhizal networks. And so if one plant is attacked by, say, an aphid, um, it can release chemical signals that will travel through these fungal mycelia and enter the roots of, an, of another individual plant that hasn't yet been attacked by these aphids and upregulate the production of, say, volatile compounds that might help it protect it against a, a future attack from these same uh, aphids. It's like a social network between the trees or a neighborhood watch. And uh, I, I totally thought of the whole uh, typical Paul Revere thing when, when I heard this. It's like, oh no, the, the aphids are coming, the aphids are coming. The aphids are coming, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's sort of an aside. Uh, like Paul Revere, like that whole thing, that whole story, the whole poem and stuff is such, uh, it's so myth heavy. Like he, yeah. he's like one of America's first like superheroes, you know what I mean? Like, like, oh, Paul Revere and the Midnight Ride. But like, there's so much of it that's just so backwards and like not right. Like, like timing of it's, everything. It's kind of like, like saying, oh, the... The colonists came over to Plymouth, and the Indians taught them how to grow corn, and everyone was happily, uh, just happy ever after. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a lot more complicated than that. Our podcast might not be the best venue to go in depth about the history of Paul Revere and the American colonies. Yeah, no. Which, by the way, I just learned recently. You know, there's there's technically 26 colonies and only 23. I mean, uh, only the 13 are the ones that decided to rebel. And even Florida was two colonies. Like, I didn't... Anyway, learned that on a different podcast, um, huh. Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. You should check it out. In that case, then, is it only to, like, re related trees, like sibling trees or trees of the same species? Or uh, what's the limitation there? Yeah, so I think this is an area that um, people are really actively interested in and doing research on. And I don't think we have a great sense for precisely, um, you know, who forms, who, you know, pre precisely what these networks look like in terms of, uh, you know, what species are connected and uh, 
how much resource or information passes through them. Um, but there's actually evidence that, um, you know, certainly trees that are of different species can be connected through these common mycorrhizal networks um, and that resources can certainly pass between them. The extent of that is sort of unknown, I think, currently. Unknown. Sure, sure. So then you're, you're an individual tree that's passing, uh, you know, nutrients or carbon, I, I suppose, down into the network. You're getting other nutrients from the network. Um, is there any potential to pass nutrients to another tree, like to, to do some kind of sending in, in that manner, or is that just too off too off the wall? Uh, no, this is, um, I think this is uh, something that, again, people are very interested in. And uh, I would say there's a little bit of, uh, not quite controversy, but I, I think people are actively interested in exploring how ecological mean, ecologically meaningful the transfer of nutrients between tree species can be through these mycorrhizal networks. But there is absolutely evidence that suggests that things like, um, you know, even uh, the carbon sort of that uh, comes about from photosynthesis in, you know, one tree can be passed uh, to these fungi and that these carbohydrates can then move through the network and into another unrelated uh, tree individual. Um, hmm. And uh, there was one study recently that came out that suggested that 40% of the carbon in the fine roots of tree species could come through transfer from these uh, common mycorrhizal networks, could come from another tree individual connected to these wow. common mycorrhizal networks. Now, okay, this this right here, this is where my mind started to go a little haywire. Like, just to throw out another, <laughs> another quote from the office, my mind is moving a mile an hour. Uh, so this specifically is really cool. 40%, 40. I, I, it got me really starting to wonder. What did you wonder? Like, how, how does that work? I mean, okay, so one, is it is it is it like a, is it just chemistry? Is it a chemical thing of like, um, you know, like reactivity of, uh, you know, so this chemical is present, so then this chemical does this, and that's kind of how, how the sugar moves from, you know, one tree to another tree that's completely unrelated? Is it a purely chemical sort of thing or like a, like a, like a diffusion? Um, not quite osmosis, but, you know, like a diffusion sort of thing, like achieving balance um, or equilibrium, or is there, is there something more there? Like, Yeah, I, I'd really like to tree... understand that more. Right, like, is, is someone calling the shots? Is like, is like one of the trees, like, like, like uh, Don Corleone, and he's like, <laughs> I need the sugar brown over me. The, 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 me the, sugar. the sugar loan shark. Yeah, he's just like, okay, I'll give you the sugar, but here's what you need to do, all right? I need you to send me some nitrogen, okay? Like, I'm, like, I'm loving on? the impression. <laughs> I don't understand. Like, it's 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 beyond me. Wow. So if, if you are a tree, and <laughs> I know you have to kind of personify for a moment. Um, you know, if you're a tree and you're able to you're not you're not making the you're not making a, a decision per se to to pass sugar onto another tree yeah uh, um and i think this is um this is a question that is um i would say outstanding so what what controls uh the balance of trade um between these different organisms i think is something that again people are incredibly interested in um and we're only starting to begin to understand and get, have the tools really to understand all of the different um, kind of micro scale mechanisms that control these uh, the 
exchange of resources here. Um, okay. What I would say is that there's probably two levels on which the interaction is controlled. There's one, there's some genetic compatibility. Um, and so plant roots have to do a lot of things. They're, they're not just interacting with these you know, positive, friendly fungi. They're also trying to protect themselves against things like pathogens that are quite happy. Sure. To... And so, uh, you know, the mycorrhizal fungi have to produce the appropriate chemical cues that tell the plant that this is a signal of the plant that this is a friendly fungus and that you don't need to turn on your defense responses. Um, and so that's one level at which these interactions are regulated. And then there are also mechanisms by which the plants and fungi are essentially keeping, doing bookkeeping. They're keeping track of how much carbon and how much nitrogen is passing through this interaction. Um, and the amount of reward that a plant gives to a fungus is, um, some evidence suggests, uh, pretty tightly coupled to the amount of, you know, say nitrogen or phosphorus that it's getting from that fungus. Um, and so, you know, the economic metaphors aren't perfect, but um, you could think of this as somewhat of a trading or a bartering system where they're sure. kind of keeping track of each other uh, and, you know, doing the books to make sure that they're not getting cheated or ripped off. Sure. There is our green guts. Now, one other analogy that I've thought of just kind of in the course of this is, you know, he, Dr. Dr. Pei, he keeps talking about uh, economy and how it's kind of like this, this uh, trading system. I almost feel like you could really think about this like like the stock floor, or like it's like Wall Street. Like down underground is Wall Street. We have all these traders, and they're all like shouting over each other with these chemical signals and passing things back and forth and making bargains and deals and sending things over here and getting some of this and and passing it up. And um, you know, you've got this fungi that's making its way through the soil and in a right. It's like it's like a it's like a miner, like its helmet is on, it's got the light in the front, and as it's mining, it's just tossing things back behind it, well, I guess more like vomiting on it and then soaking it up with its fingertips, um, but then then it's just, you know, bringing all of this gold that is mining out of the soil um, back to back to the trees, and, and then the trees or the plants are, are giving things in exchange, and it's just, it's just, um, it's just amazing. It's amazing to think about that there's this whole system there. There's this whole underground ecosystem. And the fact that it works so in connection with each other, I, I think is I, I think is really just the it's just mesmerizing to think that the forest or, you know, wherever, I mean there's there's prairie versions of this, you know, it's all over the place, but um it's almost like, you know, these things that sometimes, you know, you're walking through the woods and you're like looking for life. You know what I mean? You're like, well, I would like to see a deer or what bird am I going to see? And you have no idea that the very place that you're walking through is in a sense its own super organism. You know, in the same way that a, a an ant colony or a beehive, you know, you're walking through and it's very much, it is kind of like on, on Avatar. I know that's kind of a you know, a, a thing, but like, it is kind of like on Avatar, you're like you're walking the very place that you're walking down a trail and you don't even realize that everything around you is a super organism that is interconnected and it's working together. And it's not necessarily, uh, you know, it's not parasitism. It's not, you know, the, the fungi feeding off the plants and no, you know, nothing else is happening. It's this it's this exchange back and forth between species, between kingdoms, between uh, individuals, and and it's not a selfish kind of thing. You know, like we 
we always learn about competition. And yes, 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 yes. Very much so, there's a lot of competition in nature. And there's still competition between plants. There's no doubt about that with, you know, com- competition for light and all of that. But it's a lot more complicated. And it's just in, it's just an interesting perspective to take that uh, it's not just competition. It's not just like um, dogwood eat dogwood. It's, <laughs> pun intended, it's... Um, you know, it's this, it's this, uh, uh, helping each other to survive. And yes, there's a bit of selfishness to that. Of course, you know, if the trees around you and the mycorrhizal network are doing well, granted, I'm not saying they're making these decisions consciously. I'm just saying, you know, it helps to personify it, to explain it. Um, but you know, if everything around you is doing well, then, then you are going to do well and persist. So yeah, it's a little selfish still, but, um, it's just very cool to, to think about like this kind of runaway train, um, of, of, uh, you know, working together as a larger, with like a larger thing, a larger, uh, I just, I I don't even know how to put it. It's just really cool. Once you I mean, you, you've been in the news. Um, you've, I've, your name's popped up on a lot of different, uh, science news sources and, um, big paper, very, very big paper. Is you and uh, how many other co-authors on there? Big in okay. terms of the number of co-authors, yeah, uh, two hundred, I think. Yeah, um, but you and you and uh, two other top co-authors, I think. There were, yeah, yeah. So the, the lead author was a postdoc in my lab named Brian Steidinger, um, and then uh, Thomas Crowther, who's for ETH Zurich, um, and then a professor named Jingjing Liang, who's at Purdue University. Um, those are the, probably the uh, the primary um, initiators of this project. Tell tell me about it. I mean, it, it was it was really astonishing to to see. I I didn't even know that anything like this would be quite um, possible to do. It seems it seems e- even after reading the paper, it, it seems still just so um, large and and daunting. Um, but but you did it. Um, so can yeah tell tell me about this. Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, one of the things we've been interested in is the kind of functional variation in these different types of mycorrhizal associations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you could think of this a little bit like, um, you know, are there differences in the structure of this wood wide web if you go to different ecosystems? Um, are these sure. interactions changing? Um, and in order to do that, we tried to come up with a way to map uh, the map the different types of these mycorrhizal symbioses that you find in different ecosystems. And so to do that, uh, we came up with this collaboration where we got access to a pretty large set of uh, forest inventory plots. Um, and so this was something like you know 1.2 million plots um, where we had information about the identity of the tree species and their abundance. Um, and because we know which trees tend to form associations with which types of mycorrhizal fungi, uh, we're able to quantify the relative abundance of these different types of mycorrhizal associations. Um, and then based on that, we came up with some kind of machine learning approaches to try and use the climate of different ecosystems or different mm-hmm. plots to predict where these different uh, associations would occur throughout the world and then map that. Um, and you know, essentially what we find is that there's pretty strong variation in 
you could call it the structure of the wood wide web as you go from um, tropical ecosystems and move north or south into more temperate and boreal ecosystems, we see a real significant shift in the functional structure of this wood wide web. Obviously, fungi aren't necessarily, uh, they're not like coral. They're not like coral where, where, you know, they're that touchy. They, you know, they kind of expand large parts of the earth depending on the species. Um, In terms of a changing climate, what what are we then looking at in terms of how, how the structures of these mycorrhizal ecosystems might change um how their how their efficiency might change what's what's on the horizon yeah so i mean one of the things that people have shown is that the type of mycorrhizal the types of fungi that you associate with Mm -hmm. uh, that they can change the way in which a tree is going to respond to uh, elevated co2 and so one of the things that um is really important in the future is and it's going to be important for you know maintaining uh you know habitable levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is the extent to which trees are able to draw down this co2 and incorporate it into their biomass um so this is what people call you know co2 fertilization um and one of the things that has been discovered recently is that uh, the ability of plants to respond to co2 fertilization depends a lot on their ability to overcome nutrient limitation uh, in particular nitrogen limitation um, and that plants with certain types of these mycorrhizal fungi are better able to respond to increased CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere when nitrogen is limiting. Um, and unfortunately, what we find in our projections is that the precise type of plant mycorrhizal interaction that is most able to increase, um, most able to perform well under elevated levels of CO2 is actually precisely the one that's supposed to decrease uh, oh. most, particularly in boreal forests. Uh, due to warming of the environment. And so, uh, you know, it seems like, a, uh, you know, a, it's a little bit hard hard to say, you know, with, with a great deal, certainly that these predictions are going to come true. But uh, if they are true, uh, it suggests that there might be some additional vulnerability of uh, forest systems that we would hope uh, that we would like to be a, a good carbon sink in the future. Um, you know, our work doesn't actually directly connect this back to things like, uh, you know, CO2 pools. Uh, sure or sort of carbon pools and different fractions, components of the environment. Um, mm-hmm. But one of our hopes is that by creating this map, um, these maps of different mycorrhizal associations, these can then be incorporated into Earth systems models that do um, make future predictions about how stocks of carbon will change in different components of the environment. Um, and we've already had some interactions with people that are interested in using these maps to improve their ability to forecast um, how the global carbon cycle sure. will change if mycorrhizal, uh, different mycorrhizal associations increase or decrease in frequency. You know, and, and you've said something a couple of times that I feel like I, I've uh, glossed over on um, with, so there, there are several kinds of these connections, correct? It's not just, they don't necessarily take place in, in one particular way. Can you give kind of an overview of what some of those different kinds are? Yeah, so there are a number of different kinds. The, there, there are three that are really quite common. Uh, okay. The first is called arbuscular mycorrhizal symbiosis. And this is the ancestral type of mycorrhizal interaction. And this is the one that has been around since the, you know, essentially the dawn of terrestrial ecosystems. The next most recently evolved one is called ectomycorrhizal symbiosis. And ecto means outside. Um, and uh, basically, this comes from the fact that if you look at the roots of plants that make this type of association, um, mm-hmm. They're entirely sheathed in fungus. And so if you look at the fine roots of the plant, 
and you looked at them closely, you'd find actually you can't even see the plant root. You just see the little uh, filaments of the fungus. Um, and these are this is actually the most common uh, type of association in uh, temperate ecosystems for uh, trees. Okay. And so most of the trees that we're familiar with, things like oaks or pines or willows or birch, um, these all form this type of association. And um, these fungi are actually the ones that make mushrooms, or a lot of them make mushrooms. And so if you've ever walked around the woods and you've looked at mushrooms um, that are growing out of the ground, uh, a lot of the big mushrooms that you see come from these types of uh, ectomycorrhizal fungi. Uh, and this is, if you're interested in, uh, you know, if your listeners uh, have fancy taste and they like to eat things like chanterelles or porcinis or truffles, um, yeah. those, those things are so expensive is that they only they come from these ectomycorrhizal fungi, um, and because you can't grow them, they're not saprotrophs. They can only grow in these sort of wild environments where they have these connections with their tree hosts. Um, they can only be collected through people going out and uh, foraging and looking for them in you know intact forest systems. Okay, so then that first one you mentioned, the arbor, oh, I'm going to mess it up. Arbuscular. Arbuscular. So then that does not grow mushrooms. They don't make any, for the vast majority of these things, they don't make any sort of a macroscopic structure that you'd observe. They will make spores directly off of their hyphae, um, okay. but their spores are quite small, only maybe 100 microns in diameter. Okay, so basically the whole of them is that underground webby stuff. Uh, and, then, and then going on to the other, the ecto... That's the kind where we're going to see more of the, you know, the, the mushrooms that are associated with particular kinds of trees. And okay, the ones that the foragers will be much more familiar with, sort of things. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the way to think about them, mushrooms are basically just the reproductive structures of a fungus. Um, and so, if you they're like apples on an apple tree, except yeah. you don't see the tree, you just see the apple part. And so, when you see a mushroom, it's just the, you know, the sign that there's a happy fungus that's making fruits. Um, and, and the mushroom basically just is a, is a way of making lots. So mushroom is just full of spores, essentially. Um, okay. and so a mushroom is just a way of making lots of spores that can then be dispersed by the fungus. Before, before we get to that third one, I do have a question for you uh, to settle something that I, I am in some different groups on Facebook and stuff for like morale foraging and, and things like that. And I, I see a consistent argument and I'm wondering if maybe you can settle it. Um, about, you know, if you come across a patch where there's a lot and then you take all of them, are you then going to, to kill the larger organism beneath the soil? Um, or like, are you having any impact by doing that? Or is it really just like you picked, you know, maybe, you know, half the apples off of an apple tree, there's still the potential for it to drop more and, and reproduce, you know, so you're, you're not really doing any harm. Uh, yeah, I'd say for the most part, it's okay um, that, you know, it is much more like picking apples off of an apple tree. And so, you know, as long as in your picking, you're not disturbing the tree, um, I think the organism, you know, beneath the ground should be okay. And so sure. for the most part, the thing that can, tends to be most damaging is when people go in there and really disturb the soil. And so if you use a rake sure. or something like that to turn over the forest duff and try and look for the mushrooms, um, mm -hmm. that can disrupt these mycelial networks. And if you're disrupting those mycelial networks, that can actually have negative consequences for the fungi. But for the most part, if you're gentle and just going around kind of collecting the mushrooms, uh, I don't think it has any adverse comp 
uh, really adverse consequences for the organism. Well, you know, that, that brings up a good question. So are there are there anything, um, any kind of over-encompassing threats to these, these networks? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think... Um, you know, probably the thing that, that people have most studied and that is most impactful to these types of mycorrhizal associations is um, uh, nutrient pollution. So things like um, nitrogen deposition uh, mm. or over-fertilization. Um, because these are, you could think of them as economic relationships. And so there's a balance of trade. Um, and, yeah. you know, the trade is based on the availability of commodities. And so if you, um, you know, saturate a system with nitrogen, uh, it really influences the fungus's ability to trade nitrogen because there's so much of it in the system, the plant probably doesn't need to rely on the fungus anymore. Uh-huh. And so okay. I've found that uh, in systems when there's lots of nitrogen pollution, you den- tend to see a decreased fruiting uh, of some of these ectomycorrhizal fungi, and it can also lead to pretty dramatic shifts in the composition of the fungi. So it's like a supply and demand sort of thing. You, you have way more supply than you need, you're not as motivated uh, to to kind of go out there and, and get involved and maybe pass that sugar along. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, and then there is a third. You said there's a third main kind of... Uh... Yeah, third main kind is called ericoid mycorrhizal symbiosis. And this is um, really restricted to plants in the family Ericaceae. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things like um, uh, blueberries or cranberries, uh, plants in, the, in, in those genera, um, they form this third type of mycorrhizal symbiosis that's a, a little bit different in terms of the s- structure of the interaction. Um, I, I think, you know, for me, one of the uh, most interesting stuff about this research is really just this idea of um, kind of cooperation and mutual interdependence in nature and this idea that um, we often think about things like competition, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, you know, different predator species going after, you know, competing for prey or, you know, lions eating gazelle or something like that. So you think yeah. about, you know, these sort of negative antagonistic interactions. But, you know, as people have started to look into the microbial world in particular, um, we find that there's actually a lot more positive interaction, a lot more cooperation between different species. Um, and that this is just as important for the, the successful um, establishment and growth of most organisms, animals and plants uh, in nature. And so to me, this kind of fundamentally shifts our lens of how we think about the way in which these natural systems work. But there is competition, of course, but that cooperation is just as important. I certainly think that, um, you know, one way I would think about it is, you know, if I thought about a plant and its chances of successfully establishing somewhere uh, in the environment, Mm -hmm. the seed lands and it germinates, um, and I wanted to think about, you know, what would make that plant be likely to successfully put out its roots and put out its leaves and begin to photosynthesize and establish and produce seeds and uh, all that stuff. Um, you know, is it more important to know what plant species are around it competing with it for nutrients? Uh, or is it more important that it's able to form this association with uh, fine mycorrhizal fungi that are able to, you know, help it um, with nutrient uptake? And for the most part, I actually think that um, you know, this is uh, there's some more research that needs to be done, of course, uh, which is what academics always say. But um, you know, a lot of cases, I think it's more important for the plant to be able to find these mutualistic partners than it is for it to avoid, you know, competitors. Um, sure. So to me, I think that's just evidence that these competitive, co- cooperative interactions are actually quite important and have been uh, relatively overlooked. If only, if only people understood that a little bit more, huh? <laughs> that that sometimes it's not necessarily about competing against each other and, and who's right, who's wrong. You can, uh, yeah. 
I mean, heck, that your your paper itself. I mean, it looks like just such a a, a global collaboration. I mean, it, it it's kind of reminiscent. Yeah, that's good. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, I I, uh, I, I do think it was also a good example of the the benefits of collaborating with many people. Yeah. So there you have it. I think what's important to note is that even with all that we do know, there's still so much that we don't. But if one thing is clear, nothing exists in isolation. The natural world is densely connected and not just through cause and effect, but through physical relationships. Millions of years of evolution endlessly branching and merging, not a linear march by any means, but a tangled mycorrhizal web of life. And we, as human beings, are impacting that web on a massive scale. We sweep whole portions of it away as we clumsily walk down our own path, like, like walking through a spider web and just, just brushing it off our cheek. We are only just now beginning to understand just how wide-reaching our impact is and will be if we don't make significant changes soon. And that's partly why we wanted to do this episode, not just because it's an incredibly cool topic, a topic so complicated and so vast that it warranted multiple episodes, but to hopefully help you realize that, like I said, nothing exists in isolation and that nothing is ever as it seems. Nature has so many stories to tell, if only we take the time to listen. Last time on Animal Sound of the Week, our very special sound was an elephant. Yeah! Woo! This time. Alright, are you ready? Okay. It's a very special sound. Get those ears ready. Open them up wide. Alright. Okay. Alright, okay. Alright. Vocal warm-up, sorry. Here we go. Special thanks to our member supporters, Matt Capel, Chris Trankel, Andrea Lloyd, Megan Gariani, and Bridget Fitzgerald. By the way, Andrea Lloyd has been a patron for one year. Woo, woo, woo. Dang, thank you. Without their help, our show would not be possible. If you're listening and you're like, wow, they sound real cool and special. Well, you're right. And you can too. You can become a member of the wildlife for as little as a dollar per month. 
Details and a complete freakishly long list of community and merchy benefits can be found on patreon.com forward slash the wildlife. Thank you to those of you who purchased the wildlife merch at thewildlife.blog slash shop to show your love. And special thanks to our guest for the episode, Dr. Kabir Pei. And thank you for listening. Yeah, you. You with the ears right now hearing my words. Be sure to leave a rating and a comment wherever you are. Subscribing helps too to make our show more visible and to let us know who makes up our audience and, and what we can do to make the show better. Fungus is a singular like mice and moose and cat. Fungi mean more than one and lichens aren't at that. Mycelium connect them all beneath the forest floor and everything's talking trade and food and even That's more. just a brief excerpt of the uh, Minnesota Naturalist song written by Anne Luloff. Yes, that's to the tune of Battle of New Orleans. She shared that with me after a hike couple weeks back um looking at a whole bunch of fungi and if you want to see the rest of the lyrics to that song you can check them out on the wildlife.blog see you next time